We have a lot to cover and a little time to do it. Uh, we're going to look at five sections in this chapter. Uh, the first section is addressed to the elders, and I just want to quickly work through that. Uh, first of all, that, that realize that churches have elders. Uh, we here at CBPC have a good group of godly men who serve as elders in this congregation. And so as, as Peter's addressing elders, this really applies directly to them, to the six elders here at CBPC, but also in a more general sense, we can say it applies to each of us as we aspire to different roles of leadership, uh, things that we need to take. So the first section, recall again, uh, the, the previous paragraph there in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And then down in verse 17, he says the suffering is explained when he says, begins the judgment of God, which starts with the household of God and then moves out to the unbelieving world. For the time for judgment to begin uh, begins with us first. What will the outcome be of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And notice how chapter 5 begins, therefore. So the therefore always refers back to something that just preceded it. So in one case, Peter is saying, therefore, uh, because of the suffering, therefore, because of the judgment, therefore, in light of what the church is going through, you elders need to know how to shepherd the flock. You need to know how to take care of the people whom God has given to you. Uh, so again, three observations quickly. The church has elders. The elders are shepherds, pastors, and elder shepherd pastors are charged with oversight of the congregation. And there's three couplets that Peter uses in these verses to remind the elders how they're to, to, uh, to shepherd the flock. He says first in verse 2 that not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Again, you're not forced to do this. You're not an elder uh, kicking and screaming against your will. Uh, but instead, you have volunteered as the congregation has recognized their gifts. Uh, they have voted you in to represent them and to shepherd them. So do it. Uh, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Why? Because it's according to God's will. You've been called as an elder of this church because of the will of God. The second couplet, he says, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Uh, again, it, it's not so much the case in, in our day that most of the elders in most Presbyterian churches, except for the teaching elders, are unpaid. So they're not necessarily in it for monetary gain, but oftentimes men will uh, get the wrong impression that being an elder is a great base of power. And they can now begin controlling. They can begin doing what they want to do. And so, again, uh, Peter said, no, don't do it for sordid gain, whether it's monetary or power. But instead, do it with eagerness. Eagerness. Be excited to be an elder. Be excited to be a shepherd of the flock. And then the third couplet is in verse 3 where he says, uh, exercising your oversight, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge. In other words, not abusing them, not abusing your power, but instead proving to be an example to the flock. So, again, as we understand, it's a high calling to be an elder in the church. God has called some great men to be elders here. So what is their motive? How can they keep serving and shepherding and loving? Well, Peter gives us that response there in, in verse 2. He talks about not only with eagerness, but he says uh, the, the fading, unfading crown of glory that will be given to you when the chief shepherd appears. So our elders are also under the chief elder. Our shepherds are also under the chief shepherd. But one day, uh, they will receive the unfading crown of glory. So that's the first section. That's addressed primarily uh, to the elders. But some of those leadership principles could apply uh, no matter where you may find yourself. The second section, though, deals with humility. This is something that we all can begin to work on. 
uh, verses 5, 6, and 7. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Notice, humble yourselves uh, before your elders. Uh, and then he says that clothe, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So there's a humility that we have in living out the life of faith in this place. We have fellowship. We have an opportunity to live together in fellowship. We have the opportunity to, to love each other. But we need to do it with humility. Uh, the world is not a place you're going to find humility. The world is a place that the entire uh, atmosphere of our culture is against humility. You need to build yourself up. You need to become somebody who is important. You need to be uh, the center of attention. But within the church, it's different. Humility is something that, uh, even though we never find it applauded in our society, it's something that ought to characterize the church. Humility is simply putting the needs of somebody else above your own. It's submitting to somebody else's uh, desires and serving them instead of expecting to be served. Philippians 2, the example of Christ is really the greatest example of humility, that even though he existed in the form of God, he didn't hold on to that, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we need to have that kind of relationship with one another. We need to humble ourselves uh, with each other and serve each other and not hold on to position and status. The main point of the passage is how we should be humble people. And so that's, again, as, as we think about this new year, it's a great time to ask that question. How can we do that? Now, some have said that if, if once you've achieved humility, then you've lost it. If you think you're humble, then you've already lost it. Uh, and maybe there's a sense of truth in that, but we still need to pursue it. We need to pursue serving others and putting other people above ourselves and lifting their interests above our own. And as we do that, we become humble people. If we try to be humble, we'll never get there. But if we serve and love and, and take care of one another, the humility comes really uh, as a result of that. In verse 5, God is opposed to the proud. Uh, so not only are we humble to one another, but now it says we need to be humble before God. God is opposed to the, to the proud. Can you imagine having Almighty God opposed to you? It's not a position you want to be in. You don't want have to have God opposed to you as a person. But instead, uh, he says God gives grace to the humble. Nothing could be sweeter than to have the grace of God poured out to you uh, because of the humility that is being worked in your life. God treats us graciously, and he does that to the people that are humble. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 6, God will use his mighty hand to exalt the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Uh, we have a God of all strength. We have an almighty God. And he says, if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, under the power of God, he will exalt us. He will lift us up. He will one day bring us into his glory uh, because we have submitted ourselves and humbled ourselves before almighty God. And then there in verse 7, it says, God uses his mighty hand also to care for the humble. One of the, the greatest promises probably in this book and in all of Scripture is this casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. You know, as, as we humble ourselves, uh, we, we need to realize first who God is. And David reminded us that as, as we come into our call to worship, our eyes are lifted up. We begin to see God as he really is. And as we begin to see him as he is, then we also begin to see ourselves as we are. One of the, the tools we use when I teach uh, in the ELI courses overseas is, uh, is the cross diagram, which is it's a series of diverging lines. 
and the top line is, is your awareness of the holiness of God. And so the longer you're a Christian, there ought to be a growing awareness of the holiness of God. You ought to begin seeing more and more how great and awesome and majestic and glorious your God is. So you go through time, that awareness of God continues to grow. But on the other hand, as time goes on, the awareness of how sinful you are begins to grow. You begin to realize because God is so great and how, how holy he is, just like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And as those lines diverge, the cross is the bridge. And, and the farther they get apart, the bigger the cross becomes. And we, we realize as we humble ourselves before God that we have to have that growing awareness of who he is. How do you do that? Well, you spend time in the word of God. You spend time understanding uh, who he is. For instance, in Isaiah 40, God says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one, calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Do you not understand? That's what the scripture teaches us about God. If we truly want to be humble people before God, then we need to spend time with God. And as our awareness of his holiness grows, then our awareness of our sinfulness grows. But the greatness of the cross increases as well. The humble person before God is, is awed by those passages. To be a humble person, uh, if you're proud, realize God is against you. But if you're a humble person, God will begin to exalt you. He will begin to help you understand the glory of his grace that is there. To be humble before God is to fear him. Now, oftentimes we, we define fear with the idea, well, that's reverence. We're, we're really not terrified of our God. Well, we should actually be terrified of our God as well. He is so great and majestic and holy that, yes, we revere him and we worship him. But do we understand how great he really is? Do we understand the power he actually possesses? Have you ever seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? There's that great scene where Peter, Susan, and Lucy are in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they're having a, a discussion about Aslan. And, and so Lucy asks, well, is, is he a man? And Mrs. Beaver replies, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Well, is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king of it. That's our understanding of God, to fear God, to understand God. He is good. He's not safe. He has all power. He is the ultimate judge of all things. But he's good. And because he's good, he acts not according to what makes us comfortable and not according to things that we want, but because he is mighty, he can carry out his goodwill and bring about everything that he desires in making us more and more like Jesus Christ. Because he is the one true God, he will see that all things work for his glory and for our good. As Mr. Beaver says, he is the king, I tell you. So it's in humility that we experience again and again the gospel of Christ and the, and the love and compassion and mercy of God. 
Christian humility is the beginning of the gospel, where we come to realization of how sinful we are and how unable we are to save ourselves. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has saved us. His grace reached out to us. Jesus Christ died for us. He took our penalty. He died in our place. Humility is the beginning of that. As we, as we humble ourselves before God, as we cry out to him, recognizing that we don't have anything to bring to the table, it's all because of God and all because of his grace. It's humility that helps us experience the gospel of Christ every day. And as we humble ourselves and serve one another, we, we have a glimpse, too, of what Jesus did for us. As Jesus was with his disciples on that final night, and he takes a towel and he wraps himself and he becomes a servant, and he washes the dirty, filthy feet of the disciples. And Jesus says, now, I've done this for you as an example. You can do it for one another. I don't believe he literally meant foot, foot washing, um, but I think it's the idea of humbling yourself. If the King of kings and Lord of lords would wash your dirty, stinky feet, what should we do for one another? So humility not only makes us aware of how we're saved, but also makes us aware of how we serve. Humility opens that door to the love of Christ and the full experience of that love. But then look at verse 7. This is, again, one of those great verses that is there. Um, He not only talks about humility, but he also talks about anxiety. Again, he doesn't just say, I recognize we're all going to have some things we're worried about. He doesn't leave it there. Instead, he says, we cast our cares upon him because Peter wants us to appreciate the kind of God that God is upon whom we cast our cares. He is the mighty God. He is the good God. He is the loving God. He is the God who will exalt the humble. So we can cast our anxiety upon him because he cares for us. Now, I know there's some things that you may be carrying today that are just far, far too heavy for you. And they've maybe been a burden for a long time and you can't seem to shake it. Or maybe it's something that's just recently happened. But we can bring all of those cares and all of those anxieties and all of those worries and we can cast them on Jesus. We can cast them on this mighty, holy, good God because he does care for us and because he does love us. The God who could walk on the waves of the Sea of Galilee has shoulders that can carry our burdens as well. He is the mighty God. He's not going to leave the anxiety on us and the worry on us. He wants to take it away so that we can live in the freedom that he has bought for us. Now, as we look around, there are so many burdens uh, in our lives, so many burdens that we're facing. And, uh, And maybe some of them we've never told anybody else. But you can tell the Lord. You can take those worries and those anxieties and those fears and you can cast them upon him. My, my grandson, Lucas, is really getting into fishing now. We gave him a fishing tackle box for Christmas. Uh, he loves to fish, and he's learning how to cast. And if you think about casting, casting is a, is a motion where you're trying to get the bait into a particular place, right? So you, you reel back, and as you let go, you're hoping that bait's going to hit the spot you want. It's kind of a good picture when Jesus says, cast your cares upon me. There's the goal. That's the spot. And we take our worries and we we reel them and we throw them and we're putting them on the spot where Jesus Christ is. Isn't it a great thing to know that we have a God who is not only almighty, but a God who loves us and a God who cares for us and a God who says, bring all of your worries and anxieties to me. You know, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How do we do that? Because of the yoke 
with Jesus, and he helps carry our burdens. And so as you come today and as you enter into this new year, again, you look back on 2021, and it may have been a year full of worry and anxiety and care, difficulties that we had to go through, things we had to adjust to, uh, situations we never thought we would experience, and maybe you're still carrying some of those. But the message for today says, take those cares, take those anxieties, take those worries, cast them on Jesus. Let him carry those burdens for you because he has the power to do that and because he cares for you. Again, it's a wonderful thing to know that the Lord is the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can change that. And that's the humility we have before him. All right, third section. I'm I'm running out of time. The third section. Uh, verses 5 to 8, and this is a very practical section as we think about how to live in this particular world. It's resisting the devil. Um, Now, just as a preface, oftentimes in Presbyterian circles, we don't talk a lot about the devil. Uh, You know, we we don't really want to admit there is one sometimes because we want to counteract those crazy Pentecostals who see the devil behind everything, right? So we say, no, no, we don't believe that. We don't believe there's a devil behind every bush. And yet I think we need to realize that he is true and he is real. Jesus taught more about Satan than anybody else. And he recognizes there is an adversary and he is the devil and he wants to try to trip us up. Look at what it says. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. That's the third time in this book where where Peter has reminded us we need to think right and we need to be alert. So after he's just given us this great uh, soothing comfort of casting all your cares upon Jesus, now he says, wake up. Be alert. Be sober. You've got an adversary who's trying to kill you, the devil. And so he uses this image. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I hadn't really thought of it until I was reading one of the commentaries this week. And, you know, most of the time we think that Satan uh, is sneaky. You know, he's sneaky. He tries to sneak in on us where we really don't know he's there. But what does Peter say? He's not sneaky. He's roaring like a lion. He is not making himself uh, covert. He is right in your face, and he is roaring like a lion. He wants to devour you. Have you ever been to the zoo and you ever had the opportunity to stand in front of a lion when it roars? It really is an impressive thing. Uh, we went to a zoo in Brazil several years ago, and uh, the, the zoo did, it didn't feel quite as secure as the, the zoos here. Uh, so we had a you know a lion behind a piece of plexiglass, but we you know we were sitting there and. I was just looking at this lion, and he's just kind of yawning, and all of a sudden he just opens his mouth and lets out a roar that just my hair was standing back. That's why I don't have any hair left. I mean, they are impressive when they roar. So why does Peter say we have an adversary not trying to sneak up on us? We have an adversary who is growling and roaring in our faces, seeking someone to devour. It's a whole different picture I think we have uh, of the devil. I think first we need to realize we have such an enemy. We have an enemy out there, and he is Satan, and he is the accuser, and he is our adversary. And we need to know that he's prowling around. He is on the alert, and he is on the move, and he's actively looking for somebody to devour. And then we understand that he's powerful. Uh, he, that image of lion is an image of power. He is, is powerful and has strength. He's a roaring lion. Now, th- think about it. If you have a cat... Uh, A cat also prowls around looking for something to devour, but it doesn't have quite the same impact. Uh, You usually don't see signs posted at people's house saying, beware of prowling cat, right? 
but a roaring lion, a prowling lion, a powerful lion, and an angry one at that, gives us a whole different picture of our adversary. Peter says that he's, he's walking around seeking to devour Christians. And again, he's not trying to sneak up on us. I think one way that he roars and tries to uh, oppose us is to make us fearful when we experience suffering or persecution. He makes us question the goodness of God. He makes us question, uh, does God really have the ability to save me from this? And Satan's not afraid of, of roaring that in your face. Remember what he did in the garden with Eve? We're going to look at that next week's Sunday school. A shameless plug. Uh, you need to come as we get back into Genesis. But what did he do to Eve? Did God really say? And he's causing Eve to doubt the word of God. He's causing Eve to doubt what God had really said. And he does the same thing to us today. We go through a hard time. We go through a, a difficulty. We go through a persecution. We go through suffering. And all of a sudden, we hear that voice. Your God isn't good. And he's trying to destroy your faith and trying to pull you down. And Christians everywhere are, are, are suffering the same thing. Look at what he says in verse 10. Again, you, you have, excuse me, in verse 9, brethren who are in the world, we're all a part of this. Some are experiencing it worse than others. But we have an adversary who is prowling around trying to devour. And devour is, is, is quite an interesting word. It means to chew up and swallow. I mean, we have an enemy who's not satisfied with just giving us a scratch. We have an enemy who wants to completely chew us up and swallow us. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy your trust that God is good and he can deliver you. Think over the last year, have there been times in, in your faith walk this last year where Satan growled in your face? Where things happened to you that made you doubt the goodness of God or made you doubt the love of God or made you doubt the power of God? If so, we need to realize that there is an antidote that Peter gives us here. We don't have to live in fear, and Satan certainly isn't going to win. But Peter says we need to resist him. And how do we resist the devil? Well, just like our Lord Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness. Three times the devil came to him and tried to tempt him, and three times, what did Jesus do? He went to the Word. Three times Jesus said, this is what God says. This is what God says. This is what God says. And after that last one, Satan left. We can resist the devil with the word of God. We can resist him in the same way our Lord did. So we need to know the word. We need to be people of the book. So this year, I, I pray for all of us that we'll spend more time in the scriptures, knowing what God has said, knowing who he is, knowing the power that's available to us, so that we can resist him firm in our faith. And when we do that, he will flee and he will leave us. Devil's aim is to devour but we can resist him, and in resisting him, we can gain the victory over that. Look at verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. One thing to notice, our suffering is just for a little while. You may say, yeah, but mine's been going on for years. Yeah, but in the scheme of eternity, it's just a little while. Everything that we go through, in fact, remember the Apostle Paul uh, says that, that momentary light affliction is producing in us a weight of glory far beyond comparison. For we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. Yes, yes, it's hard being in a, in a difficult spot, and it's hard to suffer, and it's hard to be persecuted. But if you put that in the proper perspective, it's just for a little while. And in a little while, it'll be over. 
In a little while, we'll be standing in the presence of our Lord in heaven. I think secondly, it, it helps us to put God into the right perspective, the God of all grace, not some grace or little grace. He's the God of all grace. Anything that God does is from that motive of grace because he loves us. He wants to care for us. He wants to, to, uh, to bring us into his presence. He wants to make us like his son, Jesus. The God of all grace is able to overcome anything in our lives, overcome the sin and overcome the fear and overcome the, the things that we struggle with. God is able to overcome because he is the God of all grace. And what that says is we don't have to earn it. We don't have to work hard to make it happen. But the grace of God is what motivates him to help us. He gives us what we need without us even having to work hard for it. And so also, as we look at uh, putting God in perspective, remember, he is a God of dominion and strength. Uh, he is the one who rules and reigns. Jesus isn't going to rule sometime in the future. He rules now. He's not someday going to become Lord. He is Lord. He's not someday going to become king. He already is king of kings and Lord of lords. So we have a God, if we put God in the proper perspective, that helps us through uh, the, the struggles, the difficulties, the attacks of our enemy. And I think third, you put God's calling and purpose for you in perspective. He calls you to what? His eternal glory in Christ. You have an ultimate destiny far beyond what you can even begin to imagine. One day we will stand in the presence of God face to face with Jesus. And we will be in the glory where there's no more pain and no more tears and no more death and no more disease and no more dying. We'll be in a place that is glorious in the presence of God. God has called you for that purpose. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in him alone for your salvation, that's a guarantee. You will one day stand in his presence in the eternal glory that he has promised you. I think the fourth perspective that, that we get is, is put God's purpose for trials in perspective. He says that the purposes there are to do what? Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. There is a purpose behind our suffering. There is a purpose behind our trials. And each one of those words, per perfect means to equip or to repair or to render complete. Uh, it's used of, of people mending the fishing net. So God wants to mend you. God wants to fix you. God wants to take care of whatever holes you may have in your life. He's going to mend those up. Confirm means to fix or to set fast or to strengthen. Uh, Jesus told, used that word when he told um, uh, Peter that after you deny me, you'll be strengthened again. Now, the next word, strengthen, sounds a lot like confirm. And actually, in the Greek, as I was studying this, they're not sure what that word actually means. Uh, it seems to be a synonym for what he just said. But again, yeah, maybe it's, it's the repetition is what he's getting across. God wants to strengthen us. God wants to make us strong Christians and strong believers. And finally, the word establish means to lay a foundation. Jesus used that to describe the house that was built on the rock that could withstand the storm. When we keep all those things in mind, the overall idea is that the sovereign God is going to use the trials in your life to make you holy, to make you like Jesus, to make you able to serve other people, to make you humble, and make us trust him in the process. There is a purpose to our suffering. There's a purpose to our hard times. There's a purpose to the things we, we struggle with. So to grow solid through our, our suffering, humble ourselves before God and resist the devil, and trust in the sovereign Lord. And that's really, I, I think as we enter this new year, that's a great promise that we can make to ourselves. That I want to do that. I want to I focus on God and the perspective he gives me in this passage so that I can become 
even more like Jesus. And the fourth section is about grace. Uh, it is, again, he's mentioned it there, uh, that the grace of God, the God of all grace, he's going to say it again down there in verse 12, uh, the idea of the true grace of God. Um, there, there's a, a southern aphorism I've, I've heard that says, if you find a turtle sitting on a fence post, it didn't get there by itself. And I think we realize if you look at us as Christians, we didn't get here by ourselves. There's no way. We're like a turtle trying to get on top of a fence post. Somebody had to put us there. And so as we try to work out our own lives and work out our own salvation, work out the thing, we need to realize that it wasn't because of anything we did. God reached down and picked us up. And God is the one who saved us. And God is the one who has made us his children. Divine grace won't necessarily prevent your suffering. But Peter does say it will prevent any lasting harm from that suffering. God is, God's grace protects us. God's grace continues to grow us. God's grace continues to make us more and more like Jesus. There's really no greater thing uh, that any human being has ever said or can say um, than he knows and is known by the God of all grace. That's really the, the ultimate purpose we have, to know him, uh, Jesus Christ. Final section, we'll hurry through that. It's verses 12 to 14, some final closing thoughts. Uh, that, that Peter has, and some of them are personal. He talks about Silvanus, other, otherwise known as Silas. Uh, Silas traveled with Paul. Silas was a faithful man. He delivered many of these letters and epistles to the different churches. Uh, he's called the faithful brother. Uh, and he says, I've written you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Now, the debate is, what is the word this? What is the this that Peter is referring to? And I think we could safely say that this refers to the entire epistle. That this refers to everything Peter has taught us in this book. The idea of being uh, strangers and aliens, the idea of being a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a, and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we've been saved, that we've been glorified, that we've been set apart so that we can become more and more like Jesus. This is the true grace of God. That's the message of the gospel. That it's not just a one and done. It's not just, well, I said a prayer, walked the aisle, raised my hand. No. It's every moment of every day we are submitting to the grace of God and we're walking in the grace of God. That is the message of the gospel. And as we come to the table this morning, that is the message of this table. That God has done something for you. That God reached down and took you. God saved you. God did everything for you. And as we realize the grace of God displayed in that, then what does Peter say? Stand firm in that. Don't deviate from it. Don't get knocked off course. Stand firm in the grace that you've experienced. Stand firm in the grace that God has given you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13, there's this, this weird she who is in Babylon. Uh, for those of you who like conspiracy, this is code words. She is the church. Babylon is Rome. But Peter couldn't say that because he's in Rome at this time when he's writing this. So the church in Rome sends their greetings to you. Uh, Mark, Mark is that guy that abandoned uh, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, and Paul wanted nothing more to do with them. Uh, later on, Paul says, send Mark because he's a useful man to me. Peter already recognizes that. Uh, my son, Mark, Mark is the one that most believe wrote uh, the gospel of Mark. Uh, Peter is the one that gave him the information, and Mark wrote it. And then greet one another with a kiss of love, with a holy kiss. Uh, that is so uh, non-COVID. Uh, we can't even believe that, right? 
the, the point is not that we actually go and greet one another with a kiss. They still do that in many cultures. They still do that even in Europe, many places. They kiss you on both cheeks. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of an unsettling thing if you're an American, but they come up and they embrace you and they kiss both cheeks. That's really what he's talking about. Be friendly. Love one another. When you come on a Sunday morning, look for people you haven't met before. Freak them out and kiss them on both cheeks. Make them feel welcome. Make them feel warm. Make them feel a part of this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a fist bump. Greet one another with a handshake. Let people know that you care. Let people know that you really are glad to see them. And then Peter ends his book with peace be to you all who are in Christ. And perhaps that's a good question as we come to the table and as we come to the end of this epistle is, do you have peace with God? Do you have peace in Christ? Do you have peace knowing that you're chosen of God for redemption, as Peter uh, first said to his readers? Your faith isn't by chance. Your faith was ordained before the foundation of the world. You were chosen to believe and to be redeemed. Do you have the peace of knowing that your inheritance is secure, the eternal glory that Peter talks about? Do you have peace knowing that that's there for you, waiting, and that after just a little while you'll be in the presence of God and experience that? Do you have the peace of knowing that you're called of God to belong for him and live for his glory? We are to be strangers and aliens. We're not to live like the world lives. We're to live as Christians. Do you have the peace of knowing that in a hostile and chaotic world, God is in control of everything? As we look back on the craziness of last year, do we really believe that God's in control? He is. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a design. And do you have the peace and contentment that lets you cast your anxiety on God? Have you taken the time really to just think through what are the things that, that prevent me from walking in true faith and joy in the Lord? Sometimes it's good just to do an examination. We ask you that as we come to the table. Examine yourself. You know, what are the things in your life that are difficult right now? What are the sins in your life that make it difficult for you right now? Brothers and sisters, we need to be at peace with the peace of Jesus Christ. We need to understand what he has done for us. We've been redeemed by no less than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God loved us that much. He sent his son to die for us. And as Peter says, that brings peace. Peace to all of us who are in Christ Jesus. So let's pray as we close. Father, what a glorious message uh, as we have seen this gospel uh, proclaimed by Peter in this book. Uh, you have said that we don't belong to this world, that we're really strangers and aliens, and that because of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, we are your children, saved by grace. Everything that you have done for us was unearned, undeserved, unmerited, and yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Father, prepare our hearts as we get ready to come to the table. Help us realize how great a love you have for us, that we might be people who can cast our cares and anxieties upon you, that we might be people in the midst of hardship and persecution, stand firm and stand fast, that we can resist the devil and he will flee from us, and that most of all we can rest in your grace and your mercy. So we thank you for being with us. Prepare our hearts now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.